0: You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast from the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, one of the regular moderators and a member of the committee staff. Our other moderators are national security attorneys here as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. This week, we have a special crossover episode with the fantastic Steptoe Cyberlaw podcast, where Elisa is appearing along with their host, Stuart Baker, a former chair of the standing committee and a renowned privacy and national security attorney with an extremely impressive resume. Elisa and Stuart are talking with Michael Page, a lawyer and the policy and ethics advisor to OpenAI out of San Francisco, California. For more on the Cyberlaw cast, you can visit SteptoCyberblog.com, and as always, to find Find out more about the standing committee. Visit us online at americanbar.org/natsecurity, or follow us on Twitter at aba_natsec.
1: All right, and uh, we are so lucky to be here. We're from National Security Law today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. That's not enough to say.
2: Excellent. Um, Let's just say that we are particularly pleased to be joining and doing this podcast together with CyberLaw Podcast, and that many of us are huge fans of your podcast, Stuart, and we're especially honored that we're going to have a guest like Michael Page from OpenAI. But I will say, as you know, I've spent a career correcting your legal and policy judgment, Stuart, and I'm looking forward to doing this during this podcast. And I'm particularly pleased that Michael is going to discuss his understanding of where we're going with artificial intelligence. And I might add that the ABA just co-sponsored an AI and machine learning conference with Ohio State this weekend, in which he brought together about 10 or 12 extraordinary experts to discuss the policy and legal frameworks, and I'm looking forward to hearing Michael's take on the issue.
3: So why don't we jump right in and ask Michael to uh, explain who he is and uh, what OpenAI is?
4: Absolutely. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, OpenAI is a nonprofit research organization based in San Francisco that focuses directly on building and/or helping other like-minded, goal-aligned organizations build safe and broadly beneficial uh, what we're going to call artificial general intelligence. And I'd like to unpack that later. It's a bit of a hot-button uh, word with a lot of baggage associated with it. Um, so it's mostly a technical organization, although it does have some policy strategy component to it, um, and I'm in that latter component.
3: And if, if I, uh, you uh, know, when I met you in the elevator, you said that you are a recovering lawyer.
4: I am a recovering lawyer, which is... I, I'm a
3: recovering Connecticut Avenue lawyer.
4: <laughs> I, I was at uh, Williams and Connolly, uh, so not quite at Connecticut Avenue, but close. Uh, but yes I'm a recovering lawyer which I think has absolutely nothing to do with what I currently do although sometimes there are useful useful examples of how people shouldn't behave and, and that provides a, a fertile uh, you know, area for anecdotes So how did you get from there to here? Uh, it's, it's a bit of a circuitous story. Uh, I went through Oxford uh, I met a bunch of people who were looking at how emerging technologies might impact the long run future became interested in AI um, and I learned there is this uh, niche which was basically uh, an aggregator of experts uh, on AI that people, not enough people were filling. Um, And so that's what I view my job as. I'm a bit of an aggregator of experts and I try to focus on the big picture to predict where we might make mistakes by not being sufficiently thoughtful about where this technology might go.
2: So Michael, um, I I assume you meant Oxford. uh, Is that Oxford, Mississippi or the other Oxford? Uh, It is
4: the other other Oxford.
2: Okay, and I guess the other question is, um, what exactly, we call this the Geek Wonk Bridge. So can you explain a little bit what you think you're doing at AI, and what your role particularly is on a day-to-day basis.
4: Sure. So I, I'm not a machine learning expert. I eat lunch with machine learning experts, and so that's about the extent of my expertise. Um, I, I can I can make it up a bit, um, and I can explain in some general terms how this works. Um, mostly what I do on a day-to-day basis is I, I try to understand Everything that is currently happening in AI, um, everything that might be happening in the next 5, 10, 15, or 20 years. I look at what major actors, and the major actors include key research organizations like Google, OpenAI, Facebook, Microsoft, uh, state actors. I look at what they're currently doing, and I think, okay. If they, were, if they were thinking about what their actions might uh, do to the world 15, 20 years from now, would they be doing those same things? Um, and sometimes the answer is, I don't know. But sometimes the answer is, actually, wait, here's a failure I think that they're going to make, and I think I have evidence for why they might make that failure.
1: Well, before we get to that, though, we do have some listeners who are less initiated. So why don't we talk about exactly what AI is to begin and begin to sort of unpack what its ingredients are.
4: Sure. So, there, again, with the caveat that uh, my expertise is that I, I eat lunch with experts. Um, and you, can, you can broadly say uh, you know, AI is software, um, and you know, there are two types of AI software. Um, there's what you might call you know, hard-coded or symbolic AI software, where you're basically just encoding human knowledge uh, in software. You know, this is what the AI that you know, first beat the best chess players uh, in the 90s was, Deep Blue. Another kind of AI uh, is based on machine learning, Um, and this is basically just statistics. It's it's an algorithm that learns based on the data that you give it. Um, So you might give it a bunch of pictures of cats and dogs, um, and then you give it a goal, which is called a loss function. And it basically tries to predict whether a, a picture that's not in the training distribution, a new picture, is either a cat or a dog, based upon the labeled cats and dogs in the training set. Uh, and if it gets it wrong, it tries to correct the parameters uh, to do better the next time. You keep doing that over and over and over again. and eventually you get an algorithm with parameters that are designed to recognize cats rather than dogs when you give them a new picture.
3: So it's trial and error, evolutionary, essentially.
4: Yes, and there, and there, there are different and there's a, a different uh, kind of cousin of, of the latter thing I described um, called reinforcement learning. And uh, there are different ways to train reinforcement learners, uh, some of which are called evolutionary strategies, and, and I'd be happy to chat more about that because it's, it's a pretty interesting topic, uh, and, and there are plausible paths toward pretty powerful AI in the future.
3: Yeah, uh, and um, it's basically, it's best at finding solutions that its human programmers didn't anticipate.
4: Uh, the evolutionary strategies mm-hmm. in particular? Um, I think... There are. I mean, ideally, we want to have AI systems that can solve problems that humans can't solve. Um, and related, but different from that, is the risk that they will do—they uh, will solve the problem in a way the human wouldn't want them to solve. Uh, and so we can we can we can distinguish uh, a technology that can do what humans can't from a technology that will make a mistake that humans didn't foresee.
3: So I, I I'm interested in this because there was just a paper that came out that had like thirty. Surprising and slightly cheaty ways in which AI solved uh, uh, problems. Uh, the one I remember that I understand is they had a uh, sort of infinite tic-tac-toe uh, uh, game where you're trying to get five Xs or Os in a row, and the the machine won the game by positing a uh, move that was like. 4 trillion squares away from where it started and forced the other uh, AI machine that it was operating against to try to calculate all of the uh, possible moves between the two places that it had uh, put its X's and it basically fell over. Uh, the, the machine crashed and the other uh, <laughs> AI won by default, so it right. was a forfeit. Uh, but, uh, that kind of thing that, that we would all call cheating, uh, but which the machine obviously doesn't know is cheating, is surprisingly common in this field.
4: Yeah, it, I think absolutely. And this this is a, um, a a rich topic. And so I would love to talk more about this. I don't know if we want to dive into this now. Uh, but this is, again, what makes uh, potentially even more powerful systems both very capable and uh, very concerning, if we're, if we're not uh, careful to make sure that they don't make catastrophic uh, mistakes. Um if you take a system like Deep Blue and you and you give it uh, human-inspired heuristics for how to play chess, you're probably going to be able to like, generally get a sense of the strategy it's employing. Um, but if you don't do that, if you if you take a system like AlphaGo, the one that DeepMind uh, created, which is based on uh, machine learning, deep deep reinforcement learning, um, it, it's not learning based on at least the, the, the newer version. It's not learning based on how humans play Go. Um, so it might develop. Entirely foundationally different strategies for Go, um, and for Go, you know the game is limited. You know, only such. You know, it's not going to just change the game. The game, the game is part of the the domain in which it's operating. Um, but if you give it a problem in a less limited domain, um, then you might not like the surprising solutions that the system developed. Uh, and the more powerful, full, and more autonomous the system is, the harder it's going to be to predict the solution that it. Concludes based on the data you gave it, is the most efficient way of accomplishing its objective. Or even to
3: figure out what the hell it's doing, right? Uh, There are increasing problems with the people who started these machines running uh, seeing that it's arrived at a solution but not quite understanding uh, what the solution is or what's driving it.
4: Yeah, so there's a difference between the... the, So humans can set the loss function, the objective, at at whatever they want. Um, And you can have a, a set loss function like... Correctly identify a cat, or or get the highest score uh, in in a video game, um, or you can have a more complicated one like have uh, humans approve the thing that you did, and this is actually a technique that people at uh, DeepMind and OpenAI are working on to try to make sure that some of these uh, accidents you described don't happen. So this is you know, human feedback objective, but um, separate from that is is the question of um, interpretability, actually knowing. Uh, why the system uh, reached the conclusion that it did. So you might train a system to predict whether somebody should be like, released on bail or get parole, for example, and this is where a lot of the bias concerns manifest. Um, and you, you feed it a lot of data about the types of people that end up you know, doing bad things if they're released on parole, um, and you know, the computer spits out uh, an answer, you know, release on parole, and it might be hard to, to, to interrogate that answer. You know, why did you reach that conclusion? And you can get the same thing with the cat and dog classification system. It could be that the system calls something a cat that's actually a dog, and you're not really sure why that happened. Um, and in general, disentangling uh, how these uh, deep learning systems reach their conclusions is very hard. But there is a line of active research on this. Uh, a friend of mine, Chris Ola, uh, there's a recently a New York Times article about his work, is doing really interesting work on this, where you can actually... Uh, scan around on pictures of cats and dogs, uh, and it will and it will show you uh, what the neural net under, underneath it um, is is doing with the information that you focused on. So you can focus on just like the ear, and it can say uh, this is how you know this ear gives us this amount of information as a cat versus a dog. So that does some work towards solving this interpretability problem and making the system a bit less opaque. So I, I so would Michael, have, what, what,
2: oh uh, Mike, I guess one of the questions I, I hate to get you off to is that. The system is very good where its set rules are are stated, like the games of Go or uh, Tic Tac Toe. So there's clear rule definition, and you're saying that's where AI is showing its uh, promise. I guess the other issue which your answer sort of um, raised was in the example of whether or not you're going to give parole. You can have correlations uh, for activities when it looks at the analysis of the individual and what they've done and how they conduct in them themselves. But the issue that many of us are looking at in this space is how the AI will exercise discretion. When will AI decide that it's time to break the rule uh, as opposed to follow it in order to have a better outcome? What are your thoughts on that?
4: So, I think discretion is a concept that's hard to cash out in terms of AI systems. Um, and so that that maybe is, is uh, you know, we would need to decide what, Uh, objective we're going to give the system, what we're going to ask it to do. Um, If there's something that we want to call discretion, that we want humans to do on top of whatever output the system gives us, then we should make sure that's part of the process. Um, There might be more advanced systems that we can train to basically understand what kinds of things humans would want to do with that discretion. Um, So, you know, when you look at sentencing, for example, and a a judge decides, okay, you know, here's the range in which I can sentence somebody, Uh, I'm going to, and the judge might have intuitions about, oh, this person really doesn't deserve the harsh sentence because they seem like a good person, they're young, whatever. Uh, If you just get enough examples like that, you can cash that out in terms of actual data about the types of things that warrants a judge to want to be lenient. Um, So in theory, AI can do that. Uh, the problem is we don't actually know why it's doing that. We might not trust that it's doing the thing that humans do. Um, so one way we can solve that is we can have a system that basically advises us on the you know discretion of leniency in sentencing, um, and then we can have humans say, oh, that was a, a, a good use of discretion or a bad use of discretion, and then train a system to basically be able to predict what a good judge would do under those circumstances.
1: Well, it sounds like a lot of this, though... Uh What the results are from any AI process really depends on the values that are set by human beings, some of which are abstract. And that also depends on a sort of collective understanding of that value system. And right now there is some talk, and there's been a proposed bill to set up a government-wide AI policy without too much further definition. The bill didn't seem to address appropriations or anything of the kind. It really was looked a bit like a a legislative amoeba what are your thoughts on that
4: uh i don't have strong thoughts on that i mean there are a lot of um claims for for national policies on ai and and i think it's for the most part it's it's not that i think the things that people are suggesting doing are pretty pretty reasonable i don't really care if we call it a national policy on ai um there are a bunch of problems that need to start being addressed Uh, i think addressing them with a holistic view is good um but whether we have some, whether we have a document that's called the national policy on AI doesn't seem that important to me.
1: And can we cycle, you know, for sake of the national security law aspect of this? What do you think are the bigger sort of national security concerns, in your opinion, uh, about AI? And how do they, how do your, how do your views consider the fact that there there are international malicious actors, yeah. who would exploit the development of AI in a, in a harmful way, at least to the United States?
4: Yeah, it's, it's it's a great question. So this is this is what I want to back up a minute and say. So my my job is is basically to try to increase the probability that uh, the transition to a world with very powerful AI goes well for everyone. That's that's my job description. Um, it's a bit, it's a bit vague, um, and a bit ambitious. Um, but that's you know that includes the whole world. It doesn't just include Americans. Um, and uh, my guess right now uh, is that. Uh, in the transition to a world with more and more powerful AI, we're going to have an endless series of increasingly difficult um, global coordination problems. Um, and I can give examples of types of things that I expect might happen. Um, and in a, in a, uh, in, in to add one more kind of abstract element to this puzzle, um, I view this as a very non-zero sum game um, for people who like game theory. Um, that means it could be positive sum, we create a lot of value and everybody can win, uh, or it can be negative sum, uh, meaning we all shoot each other in the foot uh, and we're all unhappy. Um, and in a non-zero sum game, uh, you can get value via coordinating. I mean, this is what this is what civilization is. This is what we've done to get to where we are today. Um, and the problem with uh, any framing of this question that assumes a constant amount of adversarialism um, is that you're forgetting that the amount of adversarialism might be one of the biggest levers that we have uh, in solving this problem going forward. So I think there are very real threats from other states, from from rogue actors. Um, I'm not naive. I think that's worth taking those seriously. At the same time, I think one of the most important things we can do is think about the positive sum possibilities here and look for ways to be able to coordinate with potential actors, even if we don't like them that much right now, because we will need to if we all want to win uh, going through this process.
3: So like, could you give us some examples?
4: Yeah. So uh, we've talked a lot about uh, safe, some of the safety failures. Uh, for example, um, you, you have a, a, big, a big system, um, but a big, I mean, loss of computing power. Um, and the bigger the system, the uh, more general and autonomous it can be. Um, and we can unpack those terms a little bit. So if, if a system can uh, just identify cats and dogs, uh, it's got a very na- narrow function. It's a, you know, a system trained on supervised learning, uh, la- labeled structured data sets. In um, deep reinforcement learning, which is mostly what um, OpenAI, my organization, works on, um, what you're often doing is training algorithms that can play video games. Um, and you can train an algorithm to play... Uh, a particular video game, or you can have an algorithm that can play any video game. Um, And one that can do the latter is is more general than one that can do the former. Um, And an algorithm that can recognize cats and dogs and uh, translate speech is more general than one that can only do one of those things. Uh, And generality is important because many problems require understanding across multiple domains to be able to solve them. Um, and, uh, humans are exceptionally good at this. We, you know, at least according to us, you know, we're not really sure what it would look like to be even more general, but you know, we, we can recognize cats, we can understand speech, we can play video games. Um, so one domain is generality. Another domain is autonomy. Um, autonomy is basically the, the number of steps that you can, uh, take to accomplish an objective. Uh, So if your objective is, you know, walk to the bathroom, you need to figure out how to walk out of this room, how to, you know, walk down the hall, how to open the door. Maybe you can do it in, like, 15 steps. In computer language, you you just call these time steps. They're actually just different units. They're discrete. Um, And a a system that can uh, accomplish a goal using many time steps uh, can accomplish much harder goals, uh, as you can imagine. If if the goal is, uh, you know, and climate change, um, well, that's going to take a lot of steps and probably take a lot of generality. Um, and, you know, the, these are the types of systems that eventually we should be able to build. When When is, is very uncertain. There are different paths to them. Um, but a system with that amount of generality and autonomy is going to have r- massive risks along the lines we discussed. Um yeah, it, could, it could
3: decide that a lot fewer human beings would end climate change.
4: Yeah, and so one thing I always push back on is um, people anthropomorphizing these systems. I mean, I think th- th- these are algorithms that are, that are, you know, accomplishing a task that, that we give them, um, but they might be accomplishing, and there's, so there's nothing nefarious going on, they're not changing their goals, um, but still, nonetheless, uh, they're not going to do these things in human-like ways, um, and so you clearly say, as a parameter, uh, don't kill all the humans en route to your goal. But there are uh, you know, a million other things, and that's an understatement, um, that we wouldn't want the system to do. And it's probably going to be hard for us to anticipate all of those things in advance. Um, and so formalizing all the things that we wouldn't want the system to do in pursuit of solving climate change is going to be very, very hard. Um, and so the, the, the nightmare scenario, and this is, this is probably just one of many, but it's like a nice concrete one that we can focus on, um, is that eventually there are going to be systems uh, that can do useful things, um, but to, to make them, uh, we're going to need to spend a lot of time making them safe. And so there's going to be this trade-off between the speed at which you can develop the system or the capabilities that you can use the system for and the safety of that system. And in an This is just like
3: quantum computing. You, you spend all your time doing error correction.
4: Well, yeah, I mean, we'd want, so yeah, before we, we deploy a system to solve climate change, I'd want us to spend a whole lot of time doing error correction. Uh, and I think we can all agree. Um, so the, the nightmare scenario is uh, party A uh, is developing a system that you know, would, would harm party B. Uh, and we can, we can give these state names. But we don't need to. Uh, and and party B is doing the opposite. Um, and so they're in basically an arms race. Uh, and if you're in an arms race, uh, the last thing you want to do is have a trade-off between speed on the one hand and safety on the other, because then you get this race to the bottom dynamic. Um, and this can so be Michael, catastrophic.
2: Uh, yeah. Sorry. No, that's it. Uh, one of the issues that we are confronting in our national security space is referred to as the intelligization of warfare, that we're really trying to use as much smart data to help us, guide us in the projection of lethality. And as you know, there's a lot of debate going on concerning autonomous weapon systems and whether or not there should be a a, a person in the loop, a person over the loop, or no person in the loop. And I'm curious as to where you see this debate breaking as the intelligence and the data gets more and more sophisticated, so that we can have armed drones that will be able to identify pictures of lawful targets, and whether or not uh, there will have to be a human in the loop in order for the decision to be made to use the lethality.
4: Uh, I'm not going to have a particularly enlightening answer to that. Uh, this is this is not an area in which I focus. Um, I think there's some some difficult trade-offs here. Um, My my guess is the 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 human-in-the-loop, human-not-in-the-loop framing is a a confused one. Um, uh, As I I mentioned, there are ways to train systems that functionally have humans in the loop, because they have humans in the the training loop. Um, And this is what the human feedback uh, training process is all about. and, uh, and so, so I think separate from humans in the loop, you can have a question of, okay, how, how much autonomy should you give a system? Should you, should you give it the ability to uh, you know, come up with military strategy uh, or just execute a very narrow function? Um, this is going to be a, a question of like, very, very difficult line drawing. Um, and I think this is going to require, and this is another race to the bottom dynamic. Um, we're, we're all going to be better off um, if, if we're not using this technology in every possible military way. Um, I think we can all agree. We'd all be better off if, uh, you know, we didn't use chemical weapons, so we agreed not to use chemical weapons. Uh, That's an easy one. It's a nice, bright line. There are not going to be clear, bright lines here. And so there's just a very, very difficult process of figuring out what is going to be the, like, okay, from an international standpoint... Uh, military usage of this technology. I don't think it's going to boil down to something as simple as human in the loop, uh, but I think it's a conversation people should start having, and they should have it from the perspective of uh, the less we can be adversarial with this technology, the better we're going to be for some of the reasons that I mentioned.
3: So uh, here's my worry, is that everybody who's developing these tools in the West is thinking, what's good for the world? And everybody who's developing them in China or North Korea is thinking about what's good for China and what's good for North Korea. Um, and in that dynamic, we don't end up all, all better off, but the Chinese and the North Koreans end up a whole lot better
4: off. Yeah, so I don't think that's an accurate description of the current um, narrative. Um uh, so I, you know, I, I read a lot of translations of things about AI from China, and I read everything about AI coming out of the U.S., and, and I'm seeing a lot of U.S.-China arms race um, narrative here, and that uh, frightens me. Um, and I'm, I'm seeing cooperative overtures uh, coming out of China, not, not uh, entirely. I mean, obviously, there's uh, you know, a lot of concern about you know, which, which state is going to come out on top and whatnot. And it's unclear whether it's economic or mi- military. Uh, and people often deliberately conflate those two contexts. Um, but Tencent recently... Uh, put out a, like a book on, on AI, uh, and there's a chapter on safety. Uh, and you know we you know I've seen the translation, and there are discussions of uh, safety and international coordination and collaboration. I think there are openings here. Um, and so I think whenever someone starts shouting, uh, you know U.S. China arms race, um, I would like there to be some pushback. Say, hey, this is not inevitable, <laughs> um, and we shouldn't be leading the charge on on the arms race narrative.
3: Can I can I. I... Pivot slightly to uh, my favorite story of the week, uh, in which uh, uh, AI reading contracts for legal issues uh, um, got a score for finding the right issues of in the '90s. Uh, Ninety-four percent. Ninety-four, and then. 20- 20-some lawyers uh, read the same contract and got scores that ranged from 93% down to 67%. uh, But the AI did it in 27 seconds, and the lawyers did it in about uh, 1.25 hours on average, uh, uh, which, you know, billed out at uh, uh, several hundred dollars. Um, And it's clear there's going to be an impact here, and, and, uh, you know, uh, reading contracts is something that lawyers think Lawyers should do. Um, we're putting lawyers out of work with that. Uh, but now that we know that uh, AI can read legal material, what if we just programmed into all of these uh, uh, programs something that said, "Well, you can achieve all these goals, but you cannot violate any law." So read U.S. Code. If you've got any questions, you can hire a lawyer and find out the answer, and yep. we'll go to we'll go to court. Uh, but it, it it means that if the machine starts to run into gray areas that it's worried about, uh, or the, sorry, uh, areas where it, there seems to be a rule that might prevent it from taking steps it's taking it's p- proposing to take, it has to go back and explain itself to a human judge.
4: Yep. I mean, th- this is the line of research that people are currently working on. Um, and, and if we had uh, rules that... Uh, clearly apply to every conceivable situation that humans might find themselves in. We wouldn't have a need for lawyers in the first place. We wouldn't have a need for judges or common law. This is what common law is. Common law is about, we have uh, laws that apply to novel scenarios and someone needs to use some sort of principled common sense interpretation of them. Um, and so we're always going to have those gray areas. I think those gray areas are going to be much bigger for for systems that uh, don't think the way humans think. Um, but this is what the human feedback um, safety uh, you know, research agenda is all about doing, figuring out how to uh, have systems that kind of know what the rules are, whether they're legal rules or other rules, um, and know when to ask for guidance when they're not sure.
1: Okay, like
2: so to... would, would the yeah. argument be that we could basically have an AI autonomous weapon system be programmed with the laws of armed conflict, as Stewart is saying, and then the entity would be able, before it would fire, it would apply the laws of armed conflict and make a decision based on those parameters, and we would then be reducing the number of uh, JAG officers required in going forward-deployed when we project force. Do you see that as a plausible world, uh, Michael?
4: Well, I guess I have th- three thoughts to that. Um, um, one is uh, the laws of war are far more vague than the laws that govern the way people do you know, commerce in the U.S. Uh, I mean, the, the, the notion of formalizing proportionality or, like, military necessity is, is pretty laughable from from an AI perspective. Um, and so I, I don't think you can get that far doing that. Um, so it's a much, much harder task. Um, a second point is uh, concern about uh, a, something called adversarial examples. Um, this may be a rabbit hole actually not worth going into, so maybe I'll, I'll put a pin in that. But there are some interesting military analogs. Um, and then the third is the point that... Uh, Even if you could do this technically, we're we're back to this problem of ratcheting up the amount of adversarialness in the world, which I think is going to ultimately be short-sighted from everyone's perspective. Uh, And so I would say, uh, use AI less in a military context wherever possible. Let's try to lead the charge on that. Uh,
1: Really quick question here at the end, which is, uh, this is a disruptive technology, and some predictions have indicated that this could cause up to 70 to 90% unemployment in the United States alone. Uh, we are a country that does not have a national education program that focuses on STEM. Uh, what do you think about these things, and what are your thoughts generally on how this in and of itself could destabilize our national security? Yeah.
4: Um, so I the, guess you know, there are two related points there. One is about technological unemployment. The other is about STEM education. Um, I, I think you cannot intelligently make policy involving AI unless you understand AI, and this is a huge problem right now. Uh, the people in, in government, people who are thinking it, people who have policy backgrounds don't have AI backgrounds. We need more people with both of those things. And I think if you don't have an AI background, make friends who do, try to obtain one, or don't make AI policy. Uh, uh, p- point two, um, I think going forward, uh, there are going to be a lot of opportunities for people to understand this technology to do useful work in the economy, and we need to find ways to give other people opportunities to obtain those skills. Um, and so I think, yes, I am strongly for better STEM education. I think you know we should go out into the boondocks. I'm from North Dakota. I want everyone in North Dakota to know how to code. I think this is how kids are going to be okay tomorrow. Uh, I also think we're going we're gonna to make more wealth, so there's, it's not like we're going to, you know, there are other uh, ways to ensure that, you know, the, the outcome uh, is fairly equitable and people are okay, um, other than, uh, you know, certain jobs coming and going.
3: So, Michael, I, we, as we're finishing up, we traditionally ask our guests if they've got any public events or reports or other uh, uh, things that they'd like the listeners to be aware of. Uh, you got anything you want to plug?
4: Uh, no, no. <laughs>
3: <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, you know, there's no obligation yeah. to that. Uh, well, I, I'll, uh, uh, I'll let Elisa uh, uh, provide her usual uh, outgoing uh, remarks.
1: Well, I just want to say to all of you out there if you're thinking about life in a skiff or working in a skiff and handling national security law, and you don't mind constant deprivation of vitamin D then you should join us next time on National Security Law Today.
3: And I have to say, you know, look... um if constant deprivation of vitamin D is the key to Elisa's good looks, uh, you should all start uh, uh, practicing national security law. Uh, thanks to Elisa, thanks to Harvey Rischikoff, thanks to Susan Esserman, Maury Shank, Jim Lewis, Jamil Jaffra, and especially to Michael Page. Uh, I, uh, it's been a pleasure. This has been episode 209 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. The Cyber Law Podcast is seeking a part-time intern uh, to work uh, entirely on things podcasty. So if you're interested, uh, uh, go to the uh, stepto.com webpage and see if you can find under careers the uh, description of the uh, position we're trying to fill. I'm sure if you are patient, you will find it, uh, though I never can. Um, uh, and if you have a guest interview to suggest um, a, and uh, uh, we put the person on the air, uh, we will send you one of our coveted uh, uh, Cyber Law Podcast mugs. Uh, uh, So send those suggestions to uh, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. And then uh, we hope you will join us for those and other episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.
0: Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Look for links to the black letter laws and articles mentioned on our show today in the notes or on our website. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA NatSec.